Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we're doing two episodes here where we're going to talk about uh, extreme prehistoric mammals. I think everyone here in it already knows vaguely what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the the creatures that came post-dinosaur that we're, that were just as weird and crazy and varied as dinosaurs, except they were, of course, mammals. They were the prehistoric mammals, the forerunners uh, in, in many cases of what we have today, uh, just earlier models, more outrageous models, gigantic models, tiny models, uh, models with features that that we either don't see today at all or we see just a, a shadow of them. And um, when I was a kid, I, I, I remember spending a lot of time in dinosaur books, of course, because I you know, love dinosaurs like most kids. You and jumped in them? Jumped into them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the books I had, including uh, the excellent Macmillan Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs and Prehistoric Animals by Dixon Cox, Savage, and Gardner, uh, this was one of my favorite books, and half of it is dinosaurs. Like The first half is dinosaurs with all these beautiful uh, mm-hmm. um, illustrations of them and, and how we think they might have looked. And then the second half is all mammals. And the I, with the dinosaurs, it, you know, dinosaurs were great. Dinosaurs were awesome. But there was more of this division. Like one of the, when you took in the story of the dinosaur, you knew that something, something horrible happened, something cataclysmic happened, and the age of the dinosaurs vanished completely. And that now there's really nothing like these creatures roaming the earth. I mean, yes, there are... We still have crocodiles and alligators. Well, we yes, see descendants we see, of them. We see descendants of them, and we see some some things that are that that remind us more of the world of dinosaurs than others. But but when you look at the the extreme prehistoric mammals, when you look at things like the giant sloth, uh, like uh, the creatures we're going to discuss in these two episodes, it's weirder because they're closer to what we have now, but just as alien. Well, because they are extreme mammals, and we'll talk a little bit more about what is extreme and what's normal. But they really do sort of boggle the mind, right? It's a yeah. wonderland of creatures that you just don't normally um, see out there in, in literature or in the media, right? Because dinosaurs are always taking top billing. Yeah. But we're kind of we're taking the bones today of all these really incredible creatures, dusting them off, and we're going to look at the oddest parts of them. Uh, what makes them unique? Uh, we're going all prehistoric pachyderm today. Yeah. Now you should probably mention uh, what sparked this. Well, we both have seen uh, the exhibit Extreme Mammals. We saw it at the Firm Bank Museum here in Atlanta, but it is organized by the American Museum of Natural History, and it has some amazing examples of of these extreme mammals that we'll talk about. Uh, before we get into that, though, I thought it would probably be good for us to cover extinction, mass extinction uh, specifically, because this kind of plays into this idea of of why these seem so exotic and far removed from us. But the fact of the matter is that extinction is just not a modern phenomenon. In fact, 99% of all mammals and other species that have ever lived are extinct. Yeah, and which is... Which really drive, I mean, it begins to drive home when you start looking through one of these books and you're, yeah. and, and you realize, oh, well, there, there were like pages and pages of different types of prehistoric horse that, that, that we just, that are no longer with us, just completely gone. You know, I was thinking that, um, particularly as a kid, if you're flipping through that, that's gotta be really hard to get a hold on reality because even my four year old will, Say okay, I get dinosaurs and I get this creature once lived, but but what about a mermaid? Really, that could live, right? Yeah. Especially when you say something like, "Well, the Easter Bunny, sure, that's that's totally for real." But um, 
But yeah, I mean, you look pat back at this past, which is just amazing, just mm-hmm. riddled with these creatures. So starting about 100,000 years ago, large mammals and other species began to disappear a lot more swiftly than uh, normal as humans began to spread from Africa and other continents. Then the extinction rate sped up beginning about 12,000 years ago, and it continues to accelerate today. There were astonishing mammals that roamed North America until about 12,000 years ago. There were beavers the size of grizzly bears. Yeah, the giant beaver. Uh, Yeah, and short-faced bears that stood at about 11 feet tall or 3.4 meters high. I mean, this was amazing. Uh, So besides overhunting by humans, scientists have proposed several different theories as to why this happened climate change, killer mm-hmm. plagues, a comet right uh, impact, or atmospheric explosion. Yeah. Now, truth of the matter is, it's probably a bit of a combination of all of these factors. So it's not just humans, but, you know, if you've, if you've got a comet that is hurling toward the Earth, that obviously is going to take out uh, a, a big amount of the population. And probably most famously, as you have, have already mentioned, uh, 65 million years ago, dinosaurs, they disappeared in a flash and it's thought to be that there could have been a comet and then some of the atmospheric changes that followed that wiped them out. Yeah, and it's these uh, environmental changes, uh, some of these theories uh, to me are the most interesting because you're, you're looking, as always, you're looking at Organisms responding to the environment. Organisms responding to to where they can get resources, how they can can best take the, take them in, and uh, these forms evolving over time to exploit them. So, you, with with mammals, you see their maximum diversity about 15 million years ago during the uh, Miocene epoch, uh, 23.03 to 5.3 million years ago. And it's a time of warmer global climates uh, than those in preceding or following periods. Now, since then. Global climates have uh, deteriorated, and the tropical regions have shrunk. Now, the tra- in the tropical regions, of course, that's where you see the most uh, diversity even mm-hmm. today. Like these are, if you were to use some sort of like business model, I guess it would be like the the capitalist wonderland uh, <laughs> of, of the rainforest, is where all the crazy forms can just run wild and and go nuts. But then also uh, the alternating cold and warm periods brought on by the ice ages encourage the evolution of particularly large mammals, such mm-hmm. as the woolly mammoth, giant deer, giant ground sloth. And uh, as you said, now they're all gone over the last uh, 12,000 years. Yeah. And uh, in order to really talk about mammals, we should probably um, discuss what makes them uniquely mammals or mammalian. River dolphin mammal, right? Spiny anteater mammal, bat mm-hmm. mammal, platypus mammal. What do they all have in common? Well, they all... Got the milk. They have the milk. They're all vertebrates. Uh, they're all warm-blooded, they all have hair on their bodies, and they all produce milk to feed their babies with. Yeah, and these are all excellent design features because um, the mammary glands, this allows a mother to leave her offspring in the nest, go out and forage, then come back and pump them full of super nutritious milk. Mm-hmm. The dense fur helps them retain heat, uh, which is uh, an important design feature because they're warm-blooded, and that and warm-bloodedness keeps them running at above uh environmental temperatures so they can remain active for long periods uh, regardless of the weather. Uh, the trade-off, of course, is that they have to eat a lot to pay the body's high energy bills. Uh, and also, you also see with mammals, they tend to have large, complex brains because they have to control an advanced nervous system and rapidly process sense data. 
Yeah, and um, some placental mammals can nourish their growing babies inside their bodies for as long as two years. Now, mm-hmm. that's really important because that means that their offspring are born more fully developed than marsupial babies or ones that hatch from an egg. Um, this is really cool. Whales and giraffes, they're just born with their eyes open, ready to go. Yeah, I, I love. I don't know if you've ever seen a live birth of a giraffe, but it is amazing to see because within it's like tent poles being born. Basically, ex- yeah, it's like a tent being popped up, and they're a little bit wobbly at first, but mm-hmm. it is. It's truly they got to go because in a, yeah, in an environment, especially if you were a prey creature mm-hmm. uh, out there in the grasslands, you got to you got to be ready to go. You got to be ready to to just pop up and and run with the rest of them. There's no just lounging around the den all day until you finally reach the point where you. You know, go out and get that job. Right. It's where the rubber meets the road. Exactly. Uh, so what makes something extreme? Because it's kind of hard to say, like, oh, that's that's a crazy horn. Because within certain groups, maybe all of them have this type of horn on their heads. Mm-hmm. But maybe one is just, you know, four times larger than the next. Well, I mean, extreme. Again, we have to stress, of course, we're talking about our our standpoint, our viewpoint, right. uh, because today the idea of tiny little horses is, uh, is is kind of silly and ridiculous, but there was mm-hmm. a time when that was the model. So, Well, so you really do have to look within the group, though, to determine what is extreme, yeah. because you know each animal is going to have just normal traits, just like we do. We're, we're an example of both normal and extreme mm-hmm. traits, uh, and I'll get to that, but a kangaroo is a good example. It's marsupial, and uh, while some of the smaller shrew-like marsupials that hop do hop. Um, kangaroos are extreme because they're the only large bipedal mammal that have that pogo stick kind of locomotion. Mm-hmm. And fossil evidence actually dating back to 25 million years ago indicates that their ancestors, kangaroos' ancestors, did not hop. So most likely when rainforests gave way to dry grassy plains, hopping became something that uh, was selected for, right? Because you wanted mm-hmm. to get across as quickly as possible. And that is what makes kangaroos extreme. It's interesting because you see the same thing in video games sometimes. They'll uh, give you the ability to make your character jump, which if you were going to play it completely straight, your character would walk or run across the level. He would not jump like a kangaroo. But the, the design feature will often be such that there's no uh, there's no additional cost to jumping. So uh, the player who's just focusing on getting through with the level might just jump uh, ridiculously. That's pr- probably a, a ri- a, also a ridiculous... Uh, tie-in to make here, but... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a good visual there. Yeah. Um, so I had mentioned that humans are extreme, um, and that comes in the form of our bipedalism. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, uh, big brains before, yes. relative to our body size. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else, warm-blooded, differentiated teeth, five fingers and toes, pretty normal, right? You look at, at all sorts of species across nature, and you see the same thing. Right. Well, we're also, many of us, relatively hairless. And, uh, of course, that's a whole side issue that we've uh, discussed before in the podcast. Yes, and it doesn't have to do with aquatic apes. <laughs> Although, that would be really cool if it did. Yes. All right, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to begin a 10-part countdown of our favorite extreme mammals. Uh, we're going to you know, start with the smallest and we're going to work up to the biggest on our list. Uh, so we're going to knock some of these out on this episode and then the rest will knock out on the following episode. And I am going to try to have a gallery up as well so that as you go through this, we're going to describe these creatures, but you're going to naturally want to see them as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to make sure that we have a gallery that you can, you can listen to the podcast and go through that as well and actually look these things in the face. 
All right, we're back, and we are going to talk about the tiniest, teeniest mammal to have ever existed. We're talking about one and a half inches long. Yes, this thing is amazingly small, and uh, his name is Badenonoids, and uh, this guy was very small. We're talking um, 0.033 to 0.064 ounces, um, with uh, more likely we're looking at like 1.3 grams as the... The, the general weight of these guys. And they lived about 50 million years ago in what is now Wyoming. Yeah, and uh, the smallest, an- just so you can have something to compare it against, the smallest mammal alive today is the bumblebee bat, which is only slightly larger. Uh, this uh, this little creature here is thought to be a relative of the shrew. Yeah. And I love the this. tiny shrew. If you have cats, then you've met these or pieces of these things. Yes. Uh, I love this. Uh, pal- paleontologist Jonathan Block was just looking at some material underneath a microscope mm-hmm. when he spotted a tiny, tiny fossil jaw and then realized that he was looking at teeth. And this is how it was discovered. Yeah, this guy's crazy small and just uh, and, and, and adorable. I mean, it's something that small, you can't help but find it a little adorable, even if it's kind of shrew-like and shrews are kind of ghastly in a way. Yeah, but to think that it could sit there and run up your, the tip of your pencil and yes, hang out. Yeah, that's how small we're talking. It, would, it, it could crawl up to the t- tip of your pencil and uh, yeah, and just sit there. It weighed as little as a dollar bill. I feel like it would be a great writing companion. Yes. Right? Yeah, it would. A muse, so. if you will. But like a lot of these forms, this, this, uh, this one went extinct. You won't find these guys anymore. Um, and, and really a, a way to think about a lot of these forms is, is think of like the most specialized business uh, imaginable, say like during a boom time, say during, say, the, the, the dot-com boom. You'll have like a very specialized website that comes out. It's uh, it's trying to make money off of off of the boom. And then when they... HowStuffWorks.com? No, no. We've, we've, we've survived. Uh, I'm kidding. We're in, I mean, we are specialized in the information realm. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, no, think of any kind of like specialized, uh, you know, particular, say like a bakery, a bakery that only specialized in meat-flavored donuts. All right. Well, great. You're going to clean up as long as bacon-flavored donuts are the thing. While those are in style, you're just going to be hand over a fist. But... But when that goes out of style, well, then you're gonna you're gonna either have to evolve into a different form, or you're going to perish. And so you see that with a lot of the creatures we're mm-hmm. going to talk about in this for a, for a period of time that was an excellent design. But when the environment changed, when the resources changed, when the get when the the basic game changed, then uh, then that form had to vanish. If this was alive today, do you think that it would have um, you know pretty high internet status if it could sneeze? Uh, yeah, yeah, they could sneeze. Sneezing yeah. always uh, always helps. Yeah. Um, the next item on our list is the horned gopher. And I couldn't help but think about Calibus from <laughs> Clash of the Titans. Yes. You know, you know. Oh, yes, yes. The, the horned beast man with, yes. the, with the whip. Uh, and, of course, fabulously uh, brought to life by uh, Ray Harryhausen, who sadly uh, passed away this week. Um, yep. But... Um, but but yeah yeah I can see this is this is kind of the uh, the rodent version of that character. Uh, the the uh, the rodent we're talking about the horned gopher is Epigallus. Uh, he was one foot long, thirty centimeters. Lived in North America, probably resembled a modern marmot, uh, except he has long, powerful claws on the front feet mm-hmm. and horns. A pair of almost rhino-like horns that are sort of rising up from the top of its snout. And, and and I mean, you see these in the the, the skulls that they have uh, that they've uh, uh, detected of these things. I mean, it's 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 very obviously a, a pair of horns. 
Yeah, and it's a bit of a mystery as to what they were used for, probably digging. Some people mm-hmm. have said maybe it's a mating display, but the fact that both genders have the horn would seem really unlikely because it doesn't indicate, like, I'm a male with high reproductive right. fitness, come over here. So, you know, another clue is that they have really small eyes, which would indicate the possibility of poor eyesight. Mm-hmm. So most likely they're just, were, you know, hanging out, burrowing, digging a lot. Yeah. Though, of course, with any of these things, you're going to find the various, you know, people have, have the varying theories. Again, that it's uh, interspecies combat, it's a sexual mm-hmm. display, uh, that it's defense. But, yeah, the, the burrowing thing seems to make the most sense since this, is, this would have been a burrowing animal. So it would be amazing to come upon. I mean, because it really, those those uh, horns are just so unexpected. Yeah. And I think that's probably what's so amazing to to us humans is because we are used to our regular run-of-the-mill gophers. But it's probably yeah. just as simple as, you know, here in the United States and the Southeast, I could care less about squirrels or they're taking over my yard. But maybe another person in another oh, part yeah. of the world might think that they're quite exotic. Oh, I've I've heard you know accounts of people who who visit uh, say Atlanta and they have uh, they they've lived most of their their lives in a place that does not have squirrels. They mm-hmm. come here and it's amazing. They're like, oh my goodness, look at these amazing creatures. And we're just like, yeah, those are those are tree rats. Those that's what yeah, those varmint. Do. But Epigallus, uh, a lot of fun because it's kind of like a devil rat. Uh, and it also, you can't help but be reminded a bit of the jackalope, which of course is a, is a, a, a false creature created through taxidermy that has the, like the head of a, a jackrabbit, uh, with antlers. Um, which is a ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous thing to, to see on a wall somewhere. But, uh, in this example of the Epigallius, we see something just as crazy. Now, the next example that we have on our list is a tiny horse. It's called Hierocatherium. The Dawn Horse. The Dawn Horse. Yes. D-A-W-N. Yes. And it called the Dawn Horse because this is basically the earliest known equid, ancestor of all horses, uh, but rather peculiar. Would, you would might not instantly recognize it as a horse, or if you saw it t- today, you might think that there was something weird going on in your brain, like you're having a Lilliputian uh, episode. But first and foremost, this uh, tiny horse was eight inches tall at the shoulder, or twenty centimeters. Extremely tiny. <laughs> this this is just like completely out of scale with what we think of as a modern horse. It's true, and I think about it as like, oh, this is something that I think a Russian billionaire would try to perhaps yeah. resurrect, right? Like, forget like, the woolly forget mammoth. The woolly mammoth. What are we going to do with the woolly mammoth? But if you could clone uh, eight-inch horses, yeah, and, and start selling those, oh, my goodness, Russian billionaire's daughters. Yes. Be all over this. Who wants a pony when you can have an eight-inch horse? You I mean, can have you can, a stable of them. Yeah, you could in your apartment in New York. You know, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> this is perfect for the apartment dweller. Um, now they were they were a, a bit different from horses in other yeah. regards as well. For instance, uh, they had four toes in the front and three in the back, so they ended up having large, uh, unhorse-like feet. It's true. Um, so mo- when you think about a horse, you think about that powerful toe with a hoof, right? Mm-hmm. Just not a foot pad. And these guys had more like foot pads for trying to navigate the terrain. You know, they also lived 50 million years ago mm-hmm. during the early part of the tertiary period. And they were, and they were also, pretty widespread like throughout yeah, uh, Europe and Asia. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, you'd have to go back pretty far to be able to check these guys out. And they were probably pretty bright because they think they had rather large and complex brains. Uh, so they were probably very alert, you know, constantly on the watch because they're tiny horses. And uh, while we think they're adorable, we would think they're adorable, uh, the uh, actual creatures they had to share the world with probably thought they looked delicious. 
probably. And uh, speaking of deliciousness, they were uh, vegetarians, so they weren't going after any meat themselves. They had a more complete... Well, I would hope so, because it would have really yeah. put a, a, a dark twist on this if we finally revealed that they were carnivores. But, of course, they're not. They're they're vegetarians. Well, now I'm just imagining, like, you know, this eight-inch horse, like, hanging off the neck of a giant creature <laughs> trying to take it down. Um, but they had a more complete series of teeth than modern horses, which were used to, to feed on those soft, leafy, leafy vegetation mm-hmm. spots. All right, so we, we've had two tiny creatures, well, three tiny creatures so far. We've, uh, we've talked about the, uh, the, uh, the, the tiny pencil crawler. We've talked about the horned rat. We've talked about the dawn horse. And uh, now we're going to talk about the whale who could walk. This was amazing to see at the Extreme Mammals exhibit because it, it is a whale with, with four feet, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it is terrifying to look at. Because, you know, normally you think of whales as being these sort of benevolent creatures uh, lolling around in the waters, yeah. but not able to actually scramble up on a riverbank or, you know, the sand and eat your foot. Yeah, it basically kind of looks like a 10-foot-long uh, mammalian crocodile, like a flesh-a-dile, yeah. I guess. And uh, one of the cool things about this one is, uh, so a lot of our our stories of sea monsters come from the fact that if you if you have a whale that is washed up on the beach and enough of its flesh is gone, the uh, and not only the whale but other um, other sea mammals, um, if the flesh disappears and you're just looking at the skeleton, it looks like a drastically different creature. And you think, oh, look at this thing! It has this slender head and it was living in the water. It must have been something fierce. Well, this is basically what <laughs> this is basically what this creature looks like. Yeah, it just really looks like it could uh, take you off guard, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, which is the whole point of it, right? Yeah. It lived about 49 million years ago in the shallow seas of what is now modern-day Pakistan. Yeah, because Pakistan, uh, back in these days, uh, is an island off the coast of uh, of India, in the Indian Ocean. Yep, and uh, it, it weighed in about 400 pounds. Pretty big. Yeah. And, of course, we can look at modern whale specimens today, and we, we see the remnants of their, their legs, the l- remnants of their limbs that have not completely been a, the, the form has not completely been abandoned uh, in their evolution. It's true. The front legs of whales have evolved into flippers, and there's tiny remnants of hind legs inherited from their land-dwelling ancestors, which remain in the skeleton, but they perform no known function. Yeah. So it's sort of like uh, the wisdom teeth yeah. of the body. So scientists consider Anglocetus to be an early whale because it shares uh, these underwater uh, adaptations. Uh, it had uh, the adaptation uh, of a nose that enabled it to swallow underwater, and its uh, periodic uh, bones had structures like those of whales enabling it to hear well underwater. And in addition, its uh, teeth are also similar to other like, early whales. Indeed. All right, so this is the first section of these extreme mammals, but do make sure to check into the next episode because we're going to look at something that looks like a snuffleupagus. Yeah, this is just the tip of the iceberg. The the really weird stuff is going to happen in the next episode. In the meantime, you can reach out to us. You can get in touch with us. You can check out the uh, gallery that goes along uh, with these episodes. And you can do it all by going to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where everything we do winds up in one form or another. But you can also find us on Facebook, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Follow us there. You can find us on Tumblr, where we are also Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And uh, our Tumblr feed is pretty cool, if I do say so myself. Uh, Twitter, we are Blow the Mind. And on YouTube, uh, we have the handle Mind Stuff Show. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 